Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of the House of Hinky Belt podcast. As always, I'm your host, Jackson Frank, and per usual, I'm hosting this on Spotify Green Room. Hope everyone is enjoying their weekend. The plan today is to bring on Lauren Gunn, who is the co-host of the Gunshot podcast and a writer for Mavs Moneyball over at SB Nation. Uh, we'll talk about the Mavs offseason. We'll kind of look ahead to their projection for the regular season, and we'll get some of her thoughts on the Sixers, kind of the same thing I've been doing throughout the last week or so. Um, you know, keeping it the same, but uh, excited to have Lauren on and talk with her and, uh, and get into some Mavs talk because I think they're a really interesting team at this point. I feel like I've said that about a lot of different teams, but you know, it does apply. I think it's, you know, there are a lot of different teams that are interesting for different reasons, but, uh, Lauren is here. I'm excited to uh, talk with her. I hope everyone enjoys this episode. And, um, if you're listening to this as a podcast, wherever you get your podcast, please rate, review, subscribe. It would mean a lot to me. Um, continue. If you want, give me constructive criticism. I'm always open to changing things based on what the listeners, all of you want. And uh, we're going to go in here, though, because Lauren is uh, in the room. Hey, Lauren, how are you doing today? I am fantastic. How are you doing? I am doing well. It's a it's a beautiful day here in Portland, Oregon. Uh, it was a little, little overcast yesterday, but today <laughs> it looks like it's going to be nicer, which is always wonderful for the weekend. So no complaints on my side of things. There you go. Well, that's fantastic. I, I see I see the uh, the phrase, the house that Hinky built, and I, I admire that and appreciate that uh, very much. I have a lot of respect for Sarah Hinkie, that's for sure. Uh, yeah, I can't take credit for that. That is the uh, the design, the creative team over at Blue Wire. Um, definitely not Mark Forte when they approached me about putting the podcast together. They they asked me to put put a name out, and I, I tried for a while, and I said, if, if anyone else has better ideas, and sure enough, they had many better ideas, but... Uh, I'm sure when they listen to this, they'll, uh, they'll appreciate the praise. But um, let's get into it. I'm excited to talk about the Mavs. You know, they're obviously a team that's, you know, in the sure. square of the, the play- playoff hunt. Um, mm-hmm. But I'm curious, like, in your, you know, like, they made a couple of moves this offseason. You know, they, they added Reggie Bullock, Sterling Brown. They re-signed mm-hmm. Tim Hardaway Jr. Um, but not really, you know, huge moves given maybe what the market looked like. You know, maybe they were in... In, in the running for Kyle Lowry or Spencer Didwini. Obviously, those guys went to other you know, teams that made the playoffs a season ago. Um, in your eyes, kind of, where do you think this team can take – how does it take that next step? You know, now it's been two straight years. Where they've, they've competed in two very, you know, high-level playoff series against the Clippers, but ultimately have fallen short six games round one or six games two years ago in the bubble, seven games last year. Um, where do you kind of see and how do you see this team taking the next step? What's, what's kind of the path – for them to, you know, go from just a playoff team to a team that's actually, you know, making it to the second round and beyond. Yeah, so there are a couple of layers to the answer. And and the first one, it starts with Porzingis. Who is Porzingis? Who, can he be that number two option? There's definitely a lot of um, criticisms surrounding him. Uh, he did have a sneaky, efficient offensive mm-hmm. year last year. He averaged 20 points, uh, nine rebounds which isn't terrible. It was really just when you, if you watch him and only watched him in the playoffs, which I understand why that's the case for a lot of people. I I completely understand that Uh, you would think that he's trash. Like that's what people kind of view and, and look at that situation as, but um, that's not the case. And now that we have a system where, Yes, Jason Kidd is is now our head coach. Uh, I do believe that he's going to use Porzingis differently uh, and a lot more. Rick Carlisle is a fantastic X's and O's coach, but there has been a lot of information come out about who, uh, what he asked of from specific or from certain players, more specifically Porzingis and Josh Richardson. Uh, And so that has been very interesting to kind of hear that, that side of it. And so I'm not saying that Porzingis is going to come back next season and be pre-injury, uh, pre, I guess all the injuries, New York Porzingis. I don't necessarily believe that, uh, or I'm not going to, but I, but I am cautiously optimistic that, Hey, if Porzingis can be a very valuable player, if you, Give him the shots he wants. You need to be. Mm-hmm. You need to recognize the defensive shortcomings and where he can help you on the defensive end. But he's not going to do well in a one-on-one defensive matchup. He needs to be the help side rim protecting big man. That's pretty much what it is on defense and mm-hmm. on offense. If you find him in his spots where he's getting open threes and he's getting the ball enough to where he can find his rhythm, uh, have some have his confidence, get his confidence back, and just really get into the flow of an offense, I think he'll be just fine. But for the Mavericks to get better and take that step forward, whether Porzingis is in your long-term plans or not, the, the first step has got to be who is he as a player because that will help mm-hmm. you gauge his trade value if, you, if that is the direction they want to go. Or it will be, okay, he's going to be at least a piece to this 
eventual big three that we'll try to put together uh, surrounding Luca. But when you have such a significant front office overhaul and Porzingis gets exposed in the, in the worst matchup that he could have gotten, there was really <laughs> yeah. no chance for them to take a significant step forward in terms of landing that free agent. Um, that obviously there's a, that, that's a whole other conversation that could <laughs> go on for a long time, but the first step in getting better will be, showing that Porzingis is still a huge part of this offense and a huge part of this team. Yeah, absolutely. And I, I think like, you know, there are, there are ways to use him quite well, as you mentioned, like, you know, obviously the trying to post him up against even mismatches does not work. We've seen it for, you know, half a decade now at this point in his career, right. but you know, the three point shooting is there. He's versatile. You know, he's not just a spot up guy. Like he, you're not going to run him off like a bunch of pin downs, like JJ Redick or Steph Curry, but like, you know, the pick and pops and things like that where he has to quickly set his feet, he's quite capable of. And then even as a cutter, like when the Mavericks right. offense was really humming against the Clippers, you saw him make some really nice cuts from the weak side, things like that. And, uh, I mean, like he has limitations, but it's hard to stop a guy who can move fairly fluidly at that seven, seven foot, seven three uh, when he's coming down the lane. I know he's not like, he's not a freight train of a player, but you guys just don't want to get in the way of that. So uh, I, I do think he is kind of the, the, as you mentioned, the biggest kind of swing skill, like if, you know, or swing piece of this team, like, you know, if he can, even if he can get back to who he was last two years ago, like you mentioned pre-injury, I do think he looked a right. lot better just mobility-wise before the meniscus injury. Like he had, a, I thought he was quite good defensively that year. Um, you know, the, the bubble year, um, it was he was good in the playoffs too overall. Like he, like before he before you know, he averaged twenty-four points in those three games against the Clippers before he you know missed yeah. the rest of the series, unfortunately. But um, yeah, I, I think the point you mentioned about kind of the sneaky solid efficiency year, like. By far his best year from two-point range in the regular season, almost about 54%. Never been above 49%, 49.3 his second year in New York was his best mark before that. Um, best true shooting season of his career. Um, I think it was also his best relative true shooting, which for anyone who's curious, just kind of comparing the usually rising league average true shooting to a player true shooting. So first time it was above league average as well. Um, it's just all about the defense for me. Like, I'm just curious, you know, another year moved. It was a short offseason still, you know. I know, like, the Clippers mm-hmm. or the Mavs, excuse me, were out in the first round. But, like, but still, that was what? That was late to mid-August. And then, you know, training camp came around in November-ish. Um, and he, didn't, I know he missed some of the year. But, like, mm-hmm. still, I think that's something that matters as well. And, and even the Mavs in general, like, you know, by the end of the year, they had some stability. But they're a team that, you know was was hit fairly hard to open the year w- with COVID, you know, issues, whether it was Josh Richardson missing time or Maxi Kleba, like, there, there's a sort of there's stability I think he he needs because I mean any player needs it but especially a guy like Porzingis I think who has a cleared specific set set of limitations and strengths it's tough if those things are always changing you know the rotation was in flux so um, I'm not I'm not here to say like I'm banking on some huge improvement but I think there are absolutely a lot of reasons you could be cautiously optimistic about Porzingis playing more like who he was his first year in Dallas, you know, before the Minnesota injury than who he was last year. And, and even who he was last year was not was not a bad player in the regular tennis he mentioned. So um, I'm really intrigued to see who, who he is. He's he's a player who's who's pretty dang fun when he when he's on um, the things he can do. And even on defense, I think he can really mm-hmm. cause havoc. But um, the mobility, I think, is the biggest thing because you know, the Mavs need more defense, right? Yeah. That, that's, that's the whole thing. And I think, you know, you don't expect him to be that guy on his own but I think he really can change some things when he's your starting five and he's the liability he is in the playoffs. Uh, it's tough to really fashion any sort of effective defense. So um, that's where I'm curious about. You mentioned, you mentioned a little bit about Luca. Um, you know, he's already kind of an MVP caliber guy, um, but he is, he is young, right? He's only 22, I think like, you know, which means like he's, I mean, he's not going to hit his prime until, you know, 25, 26, 27. So in your eyes, kind of what's, what's his next step? How does he go from a guy who's, you know, maybe just right on the outskirts of that MVP conversation, not quite leading it to the point where, like, you know, now he's a guy that is one, two, three for the next seven, eight years of his career. How does he get there in your eyes? Yeah, so I think, and I know there's a lot of James Harden comparisons, but it's not, those aren't totally off base. For Luca, he can do everything. He really can do everything. The only thing, the only area that he could truly improve in, obviously the defense is like, but he's not a bad defender. Like people that just say he's a bad defender, you don't watch Luca if you think he's a bad defender or if you think he's a defensive And he got a lot better last year, I think. I think he got a lot better last year in that regard, whether it was the mobility, the help set rotations were better. But continuing, I just wanted to make clear that I I definitely agree that I think first year or so, first year and a half, the the defense was an issue, but 
He's smart. I think he moves well. Yes. He uses strength well in the post as well. So, anyhow, I think I know where you're going with it, but continue sure. about maybe the ways that Luke and Kick yes. take the next step. Yes. So, obviously, the defense, we want to see that continue to trend in the positive direction. But I think with Luca, uh, with knowing who he is, you have to assume that he's going to kind of stay where he is defensively. You can't just assume that you're going to have this, this super pro player. But what is reasonable to anticipate and hope for uh, in terms of improvement is the shooting. He shot 73% uh, from the free throw run free throw line last season on seven attempts per game. He's only going to get to the free throw line more and more as his career goes on. So kind of increasing that number uh, or improving, I should say, will will bode well for him. He shot 35% from three on eight threes uh, a game last season. So just kind of getting those numbers up, getting close. I don't know if he'll ever shoot 40% from the three-point line just because of how much he shoots the ball. But mm-hmm. if he can get up to the, the upper 30s, um, and, and, and definitely improve that, that free throw mark for, to at least 80%. I think that, that will, he will easily average uh, 30 a game and could find himself uh, in a certain stretch of his career where he's getting that 30-point triple-double uh, for a season or, or maybe even two seasons because he just that's how he's so big. When you have these big guards, um, I know you know a little something about that being in Philly. It's, it's a different kind of your offense just operates differently and you're mm-hmm. constantly being faced with these mismatches. And so when you have a player that, that can attack those mismatches, uh, it really opens things up for your offense. So his, I mean, eight rebounds a game, nearly nine assists a game. I expect that to stay pretty. I actually, let me say this. I expect the assists to go up this year, bringing in somebody like Reggie Bullock. And we have mm-hmm. just, we've brought in more shooters and, and that's going to be more of the emphasis as opposed to the secondary playmaking next to Luca. Uh, but um, yeah, so I expect the assists to go up and I expect the shooting to go up because really all, all you can ask for more of from Luca is just to, to sharpen, to just increase that accuracy a little bit. Yeah, and I, I think one of the things I also liked him last to do him do that I thought he did last year more of was he kind of used that post game a little more. I thought, like, as you mentioned, yes. he's always going to typically have some sort of advantage, whether it's a mobility or a strength advantage at that size. And I thought he used that a little more, whether it was scoring out of the post with you know, a nice little hook shot or good footwork or creating out of the post. Obviously, he's a brilliant passer. Um, the thing I'm always I'm curious about with, with Luca is, you know, I don't think it, it didn't get rectified this year. But I'm, I wonder if at some point, you know, if the Mavs actually do get that that secondary handler, because right now mm-hmm. it's kind of Brunson slash Hardaway Jr. And they're not quite that level of guy where you want to take the ball out of Luca's hands. But I wonder if they ever get that mm-hmm. sort of guy. Like what his off-ball game looks like. You mentioned the James Harden comparisons, and that's as I think where both of them have never really been great. I think Luca's a little more versatile, especially because the post game Harden's never really gotten there. Um, doesn't mean I mean Harden's mm-hmm. incredible, obviously. I'm not saying otherwise, but um, right. I am curious, like you know, what if Luca ever takes that step? You know, what does he look like there? And then the three-point shooting, I absolutely agree. Like the difficulty of shots is so tough that like you mean. Like I mean, you look at a guy like Dame, who Dame is revered as one of the best shooters you know, in the league. Are, you know, arguably maybe the the most valuable shooter beyond Steph Curry. And his numbers, for the most part, usually hover around thirty six, thirty seven, thirty. He's had a couple of really good years lately. But like, when you take that many off the dribble shots with a hand in your face for sixty percent right. of them, you're probably not going to shoot forty, forty one. Like that's why Steph is such a special player. Um, and right. so I think, yeah, I think if he gets even like 36 and a half, 37, and maybe just 77% from the line, like I think that would, you would see his numbers, his efficiency boost up. Cause the efficiency scoring wise is not bad. Like I think it's about league right. average the last couple of years. And, you know, league average again, most players are getting set up for those shots. So league average tends to be the guys who shoot spot up threes or they run to the rim, things like that. Luca is one of the foremost creators. So that's a very good mark as is, especially at his age. Um, but that's the thing I'm, I'm just curious about. If, if the Mavs ever get to that point where they have a secondary handler, like what does Luca look like off the ball? Because right now they just don't have someone where it makes sense to say, okay, Luca, go stand in the wing. We'll maybe use you as a screener, use you as a cutter. It doesn't make sense to like run a ton of possessions through Brunson or Hardaway Jr. when Luca's on the floor with them. Right. So um, that's that's where I'm I'm curious about the defense. I think we'll continue to get better. Um, where do you kind of fall on you know? The and I think it's you know there's mentioned kind of maybe some of the cross between the Sixers and the and the Mavs with the Luca versus Ben, but I think mm-hmm. the more salient thing that I notice is you know Joel Embiid gets criticized a lot that he can't close games as well as you like because you know maybe the conditioning is not there or he's 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 fatigued. I think Luca is similar in that he has like, they both have to carry such huge offensive loads. So mm-hmm. for you, do you think like is there anything that you, do you read into it at all? Like is there any something that happens in the fourth quarter where Luca like 
can't get it done? Or is it really just a function of the fact that Dallas hasn't had that secondary creator to like lighten the load for him? Is there anything like, is it just, is it just that simple that like he just has a huge workload that is a little too much for him? Or is there something deeper that you think? Because I mean, there were countless games. There were a few times in that Clippers series where he just, he would have a two of eight yes. game in the fourth yeah. quarter and things like that. And I'm not, I'm not blaming him, but I think you know that, that doesn't right. matter to any extent. So where do you kind of land on this discussion of, is it, is it Luca needs to get in better shape or is it just like the Mavs, haven't surrounded him with the optimal infrastructure because he had to make everything happen whenever he was on the floor in that series and then for long stretches in the regular season. They've always right. kind of had some struggles in the clutch if you look at stats and whatnot. Yeah, so it's I'll definitely so I'll kind of bridge where our last conversation with this one because uh the secondary playmaker is is the big issue. With Luca, the way he's built like the Eastern European guy, I mean take a look at Jokic. He's been in the league for a really long time and People always talk about Slim Jokic, but you're never going to see. I don't know. I don't know that you can really bank on a Giannis type physical <laughs> transformation. And so I don't necessarily mm-hmm. expect Luca to be this super fit, super trim, uh, just scary looking athlete. So I think it really comes down to, and he he is the he's the type of guy that he wants to win so badly that he's going to leave it all out there and just work himself to exhaustion to do whatever he can. But you need to get that secondary playmaker uh, in there and to kind of go back to the, the off ball Luca conversation, a guy out there who it does seem like if you take a stroll through Mavs Twitter, they are including myself pretty confident that Goran Dragic will find his way here hmm. uh, at some point, either before the season starts or ne- before the, the trade deadline. Mm-hmm. Um, and so Goran is a guy that obviously Luca played with him on the Slovenian uh, national team when our new assistant coach Igor Korkoskov uh, played with or coached, coached that team. So those three have all worked together where Goran, who was at that time, he was obviously younger, but he was the leader of that team. And that was when Luca played off ball. So not only would Luca have experience playing off ball, but he's had experience playing off ball with that specific point guard. So mm-hmm. getting Goran would be huge for this team because yes, he's getting older. The injury concerns are very valid, but he's the type of veteran presence that we need. Luca knows exactly how he is as a player. He's played with his even his brother for years. And like you said, Luca has same same as MB. The the expectation and the the responsibility that is put on their shoulders to just continue um carrying their team through the game and then it comes down to that that final you know five to seven minutes where you're trying to close one out or make a comeback or whatever it is and you're just you're constantly looking at that guy possession after possession and so yeah Luca's only 22 but like that's a lot of miles on those tires so uh getting that secondary playmaker will be huge for Luca because even if he's not necessarily a shot creator to just have someone to facilitate the offense with uh will be huge I'm a big fan of Jalen Brunson but he's not like you said he's not quite at the level that you need he wouldn't start he's not going to start uh Mm -hmm. this next season and Tim Hardaway Jr. has shown improvement putting the ball on the ground and being willing to to do more than just being a catch and shoot guy but he's not a guy that he's not there yet in terms of playmaking or being that secondary ball handler so getting their hands on that guy will be huge if they can get Goran great but they got to do something which is why I think you saw them work out Monte Ellis and IT which is I don't even get me started on that, but, um, but they're trying because they know Mm -hmm. that it's a glaring issue and they've got to do something. If you're going to swing and miss in free agency, you've got to do something. You can't just not address it. Yeah. And I think, you know, you mentioned maybe kind of the Jokic comparison too. And I think it's, it's not even so much like a function of, of where they're from. I mean, I don't want to necessarily like put words in your mouth or misconstrue, but like, I think it's just the idea, like general, like there's, there's in, in, in AAU circuits and whatnot, there's much more an emphasis on maybe the traditional athleticism traits where it's run, yes. jump, be fast. In Europe, I think typically because they get in often these pro, these pro kind of, I don't know what the, these, I don't want to say a cat, but like these pro circuits more, it's, it's different types of like Jokic and Luka are so mm-hmm. strong that you want to, you want to find the balance there, right? Like you don't want them to all of a sudden be like lose 40 pounds and they don't have the functional strength, but there's more an emphasis on the kind of, maybe staying a little bigger because if you have, because they develop those ball skills, I think, I mean, Luca and, and Jokic have had such great passing and just instincts from, from the moment they stepped in the NBA and long before that. And so I, yeah, I don't even think, I think it's just kind of a function of the differing, you know, just kind of the differing ways that developmental programs approach guys, you know, in the U S like I said, it's a little different. And then, 
you know, I think there's a little more emphasis, I think, on the ball skills and, and maybe the functional strength versus, you know, how high can this guy jump? How fast can he run down the 94 feet of the court? So, um, and that's the other thing is like, maybe you could, right. like, you could do the, the armchair trainer and be like, yeah, Luca could lose some weight, but it's like, are we watching the same guy that Luca who can like keep any defender on his hip for six yes, seconds down exactly. the lane and can post up most guys and, and all these different things. So I think there's a balance to be had. I mean, I think Jokic has obviously struck it quite well. He won MVP last year, despite, you know, looking quicker and whatnot and, and still was super strong and, and, and all those things. So, um, that's just my kind of my my way of like maybe explaining some of the differing approaches you see between you know guys who play in the U.S. growing up versus you know just a different context and and maybe kind of the pros versus cons of you know trimming down a lot and having trying to balance all of that. I know some of where Joel has kind of been the opposite where Joel was moved a little better as a rookie and he's put on a ton of strength and now like he just overpowers guys in the post and he can overpower guys uh, defensively. So. Um, it's just, I mean, it just goes to show, like, kind of physical development is something that there's a lot that goes into it, and, you know, there's, it's, there's trade-offs with all of it. So uh, maybe Luca loses 25 pounds, and all of a sudden he can only keep 85% of those guys on his hip, and, and it's a struggle, and he's still struggling. To, uh, he's still kind of yeah. laboring at the end of the game. So, um, yeah, I, the other point you make about kind of the secondary handlers, I really, yeah, it's so tough with free agency. Like, you know, we can we can criticize teams and praise moves and, and, and whatnot, but, like, and I don't like. I'm not saying like, I, I don't like. I think the Mavs definitely have had not the most encouraging offseason. But I don't know if that's all within their control. Like I don't know. You know, like I don't know if Lowry. Like it seemed like Lowry is really destined to go to Miami, and you know the Raptors have to want to trade Goran, and Goran has to yes. actually want to go to Dallas, and and Spencer Dewey has to be want to be interested in, in the Mavericks. And so like those are all guys I think make sense, and like you know, like I think they should they should try to have a land in one of them. I'm not saying they didn't, but like you just don't know all these different things. And so, you know, like, again, right. I'm, I'm happy to be critical and in a fair manner, but there's just so much that happens that we don't know. Um, I am, I, I do wonder, like, you know, like the, I wonder, like, was there any, was, did it, were, did they make any traction? Like, like Kemba Walker, I know he's got a big contract and, and whatnot. I think Sam Presti wanted to do right by Kemba and, you know, let him go to, let him go to New York. But I wonder, like, was there any maybe trade that happened there? I'm just, you know, mm-hmm. I'm just kind of spitballing. I think, no, Kemba's, you know, he's had some injury concerns and all that. Um, and at the time, like taking on him, taking him on plus his salary was a tough thing to make work. Obviously, Dal- or New York was able to do it because he took a buyout and they, they got him for um, a deal. That I think will absolutely outplay. But um, I, that's a thing. I, I just wonder, like, was there anything that happened there? And, you know, because I think he's a guy that would really make some sense, you know, especially like, you know, I think he worked pretty well alongside, you know, Jason Tatum in Boston, and obviously Luca is a step up as an mm-hmm. offensive initiator. Tatum's taken, you know, big, big strides in recent years, but um, Kemba would have even less pressure to, to kind of make things happen. So I would have been curious to see if there's any any headway or traction made there, and that would have been an interesting fit. Um, but, yeah, I'm just, yeah. you know, and I think you, the, the other thing you mentioned, you know, you're kind of shifting gears maybe to the coaching changes is obviously, you know, Rick Carlisle is a, is a fantastic coach. I think he's going to do a wonderful job in Indiana. Um, but, like, where do you think he'll be missed the most? Maybe what are some of the things that could improve? Like, I know, like, Jason Kidd doesn't have a great track record as, as a coach. Uh, it, it even goes beyond, you know, the, the off-the-court issues. Um, yes. But, like, what are what are some of the things you thought Carlisle did well that the team will miss? And maybe some of the things that he left a little more to be desired that maybe could be – I mean, because, like, I think Kokosh uh, – I apologize if I'm mispronouncing it – like, is – pretty well regarded as an X and O's coach. That's maybe one way, way that he could bridge the gap, help bridge the gap there. But what did, what did Carlo do so well that you think, you know, this team will have to find a way to replace and where did maybe he struggle a little bit that has an opportunity for growth, which doesn't mean it's going to happen, but could happen, you know, with a new coaching staff in place. Right. Yeah. I, I, I'm glad you asked that because there is, there's definitely a give and a take, like what, when you're going through a coaching change like this and obviously Carlisle left, he wasn't fired, but uh, there is like a, you, you're letting go of something and you're choosing to go a different direction with the hiring of Jason Kidd. And the number one thing, like you mentioned that will be missed is the X's and O's Dallas fans are when all this stuff started coming out about Carlisle after he left, it was kind of like, okay, well, good riddance. That's that, that was the tone of, of a lot of people on Matt's Twitter. And I can understand that. Uh, Cause if a lot of your players don't like your head coach and they're not getting, a, they're not able to have a relationship with him, you're, that's never going to work long-term. And so you're never going to have success there. So with Carlisle, the number one thing that, that Mavs fans are in a rude awake in for a rude rate awakening with is he used to have so many just top notch plays coming out of timeouts, certain mm-hmm. situational schemes that you were like, Jesus. And down the stretch, like he would just, he, he was a, he was a wizard out there. He's fantastic uh, with looking at mismatches, finding ways to, to put your players in a position to succeed. But on the other end of that, 
where Jason Kidd comes in, Jason Kidd finds a way to connect with players with his relationships. And I know that there's been some, some stories that have come out and some headlines, but from what I continue to see, he got a LeBron endorsement when he got hired by the Mavs in the head coach role. Like he, him and Giannis apparently still have a very close relationship. Like he has no problem connecting with these players. And so it, from where I'm standing, to me, it looks like Jason Kidd is coming in to share his experience as being a point, being a bigger point guard with Luca, and they're going to have this more collaborative effort with Luca, kind of sharing that coach on the floor, head coach type role because he really just is that good, and I think that they know that. And so, Kidd doesn't necessarily he hasn't proven and shown that he has that same top tier X's and O's ability, but where he does. Uh, where he does fill where Carlisle was lacking is his ability to connect with players, to get everybody on the same page and to make everyone like feel valued. So if he can get the thing with Porzingis is if you watch Porzingis on a night to night basis, there are nights where he plays where he is fully engaged on both mm-hmm. ends of the floor. And it's like having him and Luca firing on all cylinders. There's nothing any team can do. It's unbelievable. It doesn't matter if the defense is trash. The offense is so efficient and so lethal. It doesn't matter. And so, but that's not, but that it wasn't, it wasn't consistent enough having those two firing on all cylinders or having Porzingis engaged. And a lot of that was because Carlisle told him to go stand in the corner and you can't, it just mm-hmm. doesn't work. It doesn't work for so mm-hmm. many reasons. So I expect that to be different with Jason Kidd. I expect there to be a couple of plays drawn up where Mavs fans are watching the TV and they are very not used to a terrible play being drawn and just <laughs> screaming at the TV. So I, I am anticipating that. But again, it's a trade-off. So we'll see if the trade-off works. If it fails miserably, there are a lot of guys uh, and, and ladies on that uh, on that coaching tree that could come in and take his place, no problem. But I did also want to add on one other thing that you mentioned before with Kemba Walker. Um, where Dallas is at right now is that, yeah, there are guys out there that might not be a perfect fit. Like, I'm sure we'll talk about Ben Simmons here in a little bit. But like Kemba Walker, yeah, he's a little bit older. Maybe there are injury concerns. But Dallas is a middle market team. They don't have a lot of money to work with. They have zero draft assets, so they have to kind of take these risks on certain players. Um, and so I was actually speaking to someone ahead of draft night uh, who, who told me that Dallas was kind of making a play and having some conversations with OKC, but it was not mm. surrounding Kemba Walker. So mm. even though that relationship is there, uh, I don't think that they ever saw Kemba as a realistic target uh, or wanted to bring him in, whether it was via trade. Obviously, that salary would have been tricky to match. And by the time the buyout rolled around, I think it was kind of already a done deal that he would end up in New York. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. And I do want to backtrack for a minute. Um, I, I referred mm-hmm. to Jason Kidd as having off-court issues. I don't want to gloss. I don't want to be as vague. What he did was he was he pled guilty to domestic abuse with his ex-wife. I hate using awkward issues as yes. a vague term, so I wanted to. Um, to that, I apologize for anyone who took a, to you know, not took who any who I anyhow. Uh, I just want to be specific with that because I think it's important. A lot of times it will get glossed over. Mm-hmm. Awkward issues, not such a vague term, but he is he has pled guilty to domestic abuse about twenty years ago. Uh, wanted to specific about that. I think it's important to do. Uh, and so anyhow, uh, not to necessarily just gloss over that, but I, I wanted to be clear about what happened there. Um, but yeah, I think, I think mm-hmm. that's, that's all quite reasonable. And I, I do just kind of, you know, just, there are just like some of the kids stories really are I don't, like, I don't want to get too like, ha- and I don't want haunting, but like mind boggling and like head scratching. And, yes. and so you, you like for, for the sake of the players, you would hope that he has learned. I mean, it's been what, four or five years since he was last head coach. You would hope that he's learned because like, Mm-hmm. Like, just some of the stuff that, like, the, some of those are, like, I think Mirren Fader had, I mean, her book came out recently about Giannis, but they, they did publish, publish a couple of stories in The Ringer where she is nowadays, um, and some of them were just really, really um, didn't seem good for team camaraderie or the mental headspace of players. So, um, for their sake, I hope Kid has absolutely learned from you know, his failures previously. And um, But, yeah, I, I think Igor, like, like I said, I think he's done, you know, like, I, I like some of the sets he ran his one year in Phoenix. Obviously, it wasn't a great year in Phoenix. But I think there's definitely kind of at right. least some ability to maybe bridge bridge that gap that you lose with with Carla, who's as you mentioned a brilliant you know schematic and, and tact, you know, tactical coach. I think some of the, like some of the things he did in that 
and that match Clippers. I mean, obviously, Luka was the main reason they were in that series, but they had no business taking that to seven games, even with Luka's greatness. Um, so, like, bringing Boban in, I know, like, it was kind of a strange move, but it worked for the most part. Like, going zone, um, just a bunch of funky things that I think, you know, Kid has not shown and a willingness to, to do at this point. Again, I mean, you can, like... Right. We always talk about players getting better, and I'm not trying to like be our defending Jason Kidd, but I think like you know like coaches can get better too. Right? Sometimes it just takes coaches the right you know the right time. Like you know, look at a guy like Nick Millen, who you know I think he someone wrote an article about him, you know, as he was really finding success in Atlanta, and he talked about learning from previous experiences and learning to maybe you know take the take kind of the a, a step back at times and listen to the players a little more. And so I think we always talk about development with, mm-hmm. with players, but like in any job, you just learn, you learn from previous stops and things like that. And so maybe kids gotten better in that regard. And, and I hope for, you know, for hope for their sake, again, the players that he has gotten better in a lot of regards, but that's something I'm just curious to see, you know, this will be his third head coaching gig. You got a couple of years with the championship team and their championship contender in LA, obviously, you know, the Lakers struggled last year a little bit, but um, I think it's just an underrated thing. Sometimes coaches get better with, with experiences than anyone does with, with new jobs after some struggles. So curious to see how that, how that works. Um, I'm not super optimistic about it. Just kind of given the, the stories <laughs> out about kid, he seems to be a very uh, set in his ways, a little bit stubborn sort of personality, but uh, I wouldn't rule it out. I think that's an important mm-hmm. um, thing to mention there. Um, and so I think we kind of talked about some of the reasons for optimism, some of the, the concerns, but, I would like to kind of shift gears a little bit to the Sixers. Um, you mentioned Ben Simmons. You know, obviously he yes. is a guy who looks like he's played his last game as a Sixer. Um, and and I, I, wonder, I wonder kind of from your perspective, are you at all surprised that the Mavs haven't at least been mentioned as interested? Maybe I've missed a report, but like, and I know that their path <laughs> to trade for Ben is, is tough because they would have to trade Porzingis. And I don't know how alluring Porzingis mm-hmm. is because he's best as a five and the Sixers best player is, is a center. But are you, are you at all like surprised that there hasn't been at right. least any mention you know, of them? Because he may, I mean, I know he's not necessarily a secondary creator, but like he's, he's the perimeter defender. They, I mean, like Dorian Finney Smith is fabulous for a lot of reasons, but you, you can see oh, the limitations yeah. of him when you have to kind of, you can have, you have to put him on the number one option at times. So like, are you at all surprised there hasn't been at least any mention of them because Simmons is a very good player and, you know, really does give them some, some much needed perimeter defense. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, I guess I'm I am a little bit surprised. Uh, uh, like you mentioned, the only really the only avenue that could happen would be to to move Porzingis in some sort of three team trade uh, with probably someone like Portland that would send somebody to Philly that mm-hmm. Philadelphia needs. They don't need Porzingis, so um, I am intrigued by the the potential duo of Ben Simmons and Luca because talk about positionless basketball and playing with size. I mean, it would be very fun to watch. Um, but I mean, you'd have your secondary ball handler, you would have the defense. It would be something to watch, but Dallas is, seems to be very set on, um, Porzingis and 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 theoretically there is no reason why Porzingis and Luca can't work together and can't both be successful on paper. So with Porzingis's value being what it is, they they just seem so determined to be right about the trade and the move for Porzingis and the potential of this duo together. So while I would love to see Dallas try to make a swing for Ben Simmons, because I will 1000% stand by, if you are any team that's looking at this Ben Simmons situation and saying, Hey, we need a guy that could potentially change the trajectory of our franchise. Let's take a swing at Ben Simmons because he's doing what he's doing to lower his trade value. And now's the time to take a swing when uh, one year ago and two years ago, he was looked at as one of, if not the most valuable young asset out there. Yeah. You take the swing on Ben Simmons, if you can make something happen. But I do think Dallas is a little set in their ways in terms of, like I said, proving that they were right and showing that the duo of Porzingis and Luca can be successful. Um, And I also think that any team that could try and get Porzingis, as the third team, uh, like even if it was like San Antonio to, to, to send DeJounte Murray plus more to like, I just don't know that each team is getting enough. Like Dallas might love the idea of getting Ben Simmons, but I don't think Dallas could offer enough in a three team deal like Porzingis plus this plus that to try and make it appealing enough for the third team to come in and facilitate or for Philadelphia to say, yeah, we're just not getting enough. If we're not even getting Porzingis, like who are we getting? Are we getting CJ McCollum? 
-hmm. Well, we probably prefer to have Dame Lillard. And I don't think that that's (laughs) on the table. So Mm -hmm. I just, it kind of seems like it's the type of thing that would be at an impasse. I love the idea of Luca and Ben Simmons. I don't know if Ben would like to play with Luca. Maybe he would, maybe he wouldn't. Uh, It really just, I don't know. I don't know where he would stand with that. I've heard different things. So I don't want to say that I know exactly where his head would be at with that. Uh, But yeah, I guess I'm a little, I am surprised it hasn't at least been mentioned because it it does seem like the most logical thing to address everyone's needs would be CJ to Philly, Ben to Dallas, Porzingis Mm -hmm. to Portland. But if you're Portland and you do that deal, you might as well just drive Damian Lillard to the airport because I think that that'd be personally. I think that that's probably the last thing he would want, especially given the relationship with CJ. So um, mm-hmm. I guess surprise. Short answer: surprised. Long answer that I just went on for for about ten minutes. Uh, I'm also not that surprised. Yeah, I think I feel similar. Like conceptually, it absolutely makes sense fit wise, but you get into the logistics of how it would work, and you kind of maybe the you know, just the relationships and all that. And I think, you know, just in general with, with the Ben situation, I think it's tough because you want him alongside a guy like a Luca or even a Dame who can, you know, really drive that offense and like mm-hmm. draw double teams and pick and rolls and let Ben work in space. But he, but Ben has long preferred to have the ball in his hands. And when he goes long stretch without it, he becomes a little disengaged. Right. You saw that, you know, firsthand throughout that Atlanta series. You saw it at times a couple of years ago against Toronto. Um, he was better than that Toronto series, but still you saw at times where he floated a little bit when Jimmy was, was running the half-court offense. And so um, this is like not me telling Ben how to, you know, approach things, but I think like the, like it just is a tough, it's just a tough spot for him because he wants the ball in his hands, but like he's at his best when he is kind of playing that more big man role in the half-court. Like he can absolutely do all the stuff in transition still be the, the virtuoso passer there, but I think his best path to really kind of building upon the potential he's shown now for three or four years is, you know, relinquishing some of that and, you know, realizing that maybe he's best as a, a hybrid forward rather than a true point guard that he's kind of long tried to be. And, you know, the situations have allowed it to be for long stretches. Mm-hmm. So um, just a tough situation. And, and I, I wonder how that would play out. I, I, you know, I hope for his sake that he, you know, he, he becomes more willing to play that role because I think he could do really, really awesome things in it, but we just haven't gotten mm-hmm. there yet through, through Absolutely. four seasons with him. Um, but uh, I'm just curious kind of about your general, you know, takes and kind of perception of the Sixers coming into this year. It's such a strange team to try and talk about. I mean, it's been it's, <laughs> as we've kind of shifted gears from, you know, uh, reflecting on the season to the draft or free agency. Like now that we're kind of actually forward looking to the next season, like when I try and host these pods or these rooms, I'm like, how do I go about discussing this team whose mm-hmm. second slash third best player is in flux and we don't know what's going to happen there. But what are, what are your kind of perceptions of this team entering next year? Are there any suitors you do like for, for Ben Sims that makes sense for both him basketball wise, and maybe the, the team that could like actually offer the Sixers someone they'd be interested in. So just any, any kind of takes or, or stance you have on the Sixers, I would love to hear because I think there's such an interesting team and the more voices we get on these, these pods, the better. Yes. Okay. So I will do my best to stay as, short as I can with this, because I actually have a lot of thoughts on the 76ers. Uh, I will start by saying I'm very curious as to what's going to happen with Tyrese Maxey. The whole clutch sports dynamic there is very, very fascinating. And the the roles that agents can have to, to I guess, on the league and the, the impact that they can have. Uh, but I'm a big fan of Shake Milton, obviously from SMU uh, right here in Dallas. I'm a big fan of him. And I think he's going to be continue to be uh, a, a highly valued piece uh, long term for Philadelphia. So um, moving to trade packages and, and trade destinations, um, I said for a long time that Sacramento made a lot of sense, but I just don't see Philadelphia being okay with a return package that does not include Fox or Tyrese Halliburton. And I have also mm-hmm. been one to say that they just don't have the leverage to get those players. I don't see Sacramento including either of them. So one package that I think actually makes a lot of sense for everyone involved would be a three-team deal. And I want to tell me if I want to hear you tell me if I'm crazy <laughs> for this. So the three-team deal is between Philadelphia, Utah, and San Antonio. And the trade is um, Ben Simmons goes to Utah to address Rudy Gay and kind of help – or not Rudy Gay, Jesus, Rudy Gobert. Um, and <laughs> they do his, have Rudy Gay now, though. They so do now have Rudy Gay, which you. is funny. Um, but Rudy Gobert in the playoffs, we saw we just saw what happened. Very similar to Porzingis. You get a bad matchup, you can't have him on the floor. So if you have Ben Simmons, is that something that helps keep Rudy on the floor if you have this extra defensive uh, – 
level of versatility. And this mm-hmm. all starts, let me preface this by saying this, this all only happens if Utah says Ben Simmons is worth taking the swing on. He will help us in terms of the defense come playoff time. We already have Donovan Mitchell and we already have Mike Conley. So if we can make the move for Ben Simmons to, to improve our defense, why not take the swing? So the trade is Ben Simmons goes to Utah. Utah sends Joe Ingles and Bogdanovich to Philadelphia and Philadelphia also sends Tyrese Maxey to San Antonio. San Antonio sends DeJounte Murray uh, to Philadelphia. So Philadelphia gets their playmaker, their long point guard who plays on both sides of the ball, and they get the scoring uh, replacement of Bogdanovich and Joe Ingles. Um, and Utah moves off those two contracts. Again, you're locking all your money up into that core moving forward, but their money already is kind of locked up. So let's just keep it real. Uh, so I think it is interesting for all teams involved. Again, I don't know that it's the, I don't know that it's the ideal return that Philadelphia wants, but it's a win now return with a point guard who's ready to play and ready to win. Uh, and DeJounte Murray, I think not obviously not the same level of Ben Simmons, but I think it's a trade that could work for all teams involved uh, if they can't get one of the targets that they really have their eyes on with Philadelphia. Yeah. So who? So so San, so Philadelphia gets Boyan Ingles and Dejounte. San Antonio gets who does San Antonio get yes. in this case? They get Maxie, Tyrese Maxi, and then Utah they get, gets Ben. Yeah, they get Maxi. Okay. Yeah. So I think for Philadelphia, that's absolutely yeah, absolutely. When I think you probably have to include a pick to San Antonio or some. Maybe another young player. Maybe it's a, a Jaden Springer. Yeah. I guess they already have a lot of guards there. Maybe it's a Isaiah Joe is more of a wing type player. Maybe it's a Paul Reed, um, who's obviously a front court player. They don't have a ton of young front court options there. Utah, I think it's maybe a little too much offensive firepower to to relinquish. Really, you still have Conley and, and Mitchell and, and Clarkson, but I think Ingles is really key to what mm-hmm. they do. And Boyan can kind of he's kind of their mismatch guy. Um, but I think like the the basis of it, I think is there. You could I think like. It's not something that like every team is like absolutely like no like they they they're just outright. It's one of those things where maybe there's some countering, there's some negotiations to it. So um, I, I think there's at least a foundation right. for it. I think like there probably have to be a little, maybe some picks involved there for San Antonio and Utah just because they're you know obviously giving up some key key things. I know that you know San Antonio seems pretty committed to Dejounte given the development and the fact right. they've really kind of tried to grow his his kind of floor general game in recent seasons, but. Um, I think that would be a huge win for Philadelphia. Like getting a guy like Boyan who can create in the half court a little bit. A guy like Ingles is a really smart player. Like playing off of Joel would be fabulous. I mean, such a good shooter can relocate. Has really kind of declined mm-hmm. defensively, but I think you can you can take a step back defensively when like when you have it. I mean, the Sixers' defense was great in the last year. All, all last year, even going into the Hawks series. So um, I, I was kind of harping on that. Like it's right. fine if you really kind of make a pretty significant uh, defense for offense turnoff because you know you're probably going to be a solid or good defensive team with Joel in the back line. It's still have Danny Green, Matisse. In this case, you get DeJounte. Dan Burke's a great, you know, assistant coach defensively. So um, I think it makes sense for the Sixers. I think you'd probably just have to give up more to kind of entice the other two teams. But I think, because I just think, you know, like Maxie, I think is going to be a fantastic player, but he's a little, he's a little bit behind in terms of, you know, DeJounte is roughly a starting caliber player and Maxie's not there, right? So you'd have to, maybe have to give a little more, maybe just a pick. Maybe it could be top 15 protected. I mean, it could be something that like, that is gonna is gonna yeah. convey um, because the Sixers, it's not I mean, the Sixers aren't going to be drafting top fifteen, probably not even top twenty. If they made that deal, they'd still be you know in the bottom third in terms of draft picks in the first round. So I think it makes some sense, and I guess I should mention like Rudy Gay has a little bit of you know offensive juice as well, so they would still have that there in Utah. Um, but I think you have to give it a little mm-hmm. more. You know, ben, ben is good, but I like the idea of of Utah getting more perimeter defense because as you mentioned, like like yeah, Gobert struggled, but it's similar to Porzingis in that it was largely a function of like. They didn't have perimeter de- defense, right? Like they had, they kept having to go this five out. Like Gobert kept getting switched mm-hmm. out on the perimeter because, you know, Ingles isn't good defensively. Mitchell was a little bit limited. Conley was limited, out and limited. Um, and all these guys, and like, it's like it's Royce O'Neal and nobody else. And Royce is a good defender, but um, he can't guard everyone, especially in that Clippers offense that was you know pinging the ball around and putting right. everyone in space. And similar again, Clippers, Clippers and Jazz, or Clippers and Clippers play the Jazz in the map. Excuse me. So I totally get the idea there. Um, but but I, I like the foundation of it. Again, like I said, I think you probably have to give more to the two Western Conference teams involved, but um, I don't think it's something that automatically, you know, teams right. hang up. They, they're probably at least, they get it. Because, like, DeJounte is good, and I know he has a little bit of a late growth curve just given kind of where he's at offensively, but he is 25, right? I mean, like, and Maxi is, 
20, I think. I think he turns 21 in November, right around the start of the season. Um, so you would get younger, and then maybe you can move Derek White for another young player. You've got mm-hmm. Devin Vassell, who's you know a young guy who's you know also entering his second yep. year. So um, Kellen Johnson entering his third year. You've got Salmonitz there. Um, so it would, you know that's not to say that like Dejounte isn't young, but like he's just on a little bit different different timeline than some of the other guys there. So I totally, I totally kind of exactly. see the foundational appeal of it, and I, I like the idea of it. I think it's something that could at least make some sense because Utah is like I know it's, in, it's I know that like. I know that Utah hasn't, like, there's been, there's not been anyone that, like, there's not anyone on Utah that, like, Ben Words repeated, like, significant struggles every year, and now he's asked out. But, like, Utah is similar to Philadelphia, like, both the one seeds, right? And they still haven't made it out of the second round in this kind of, this, mm-hmm. the Gobert versus the Embiid era, right? So, I, I do think Utah is a team that probably should make a swing to try and do something, because, like they're a good team and they and they're pretty well coached. I think Snyder made a, was a little too stubborn in the playoffs, but like very very oh. well coached, have good players. But like they're just missing that high end talent. Like it's just, it's just similar to the Sixers. Yep. Like they're not exactly. going to beat they're not going to beat the Lakers when they're at full strength. They're not going to beat the Clippers <laughs> even without Kawhi for half the series. I know that Mitchell was a little bit hampered and Conley was out for some of the series, but like I think that they got to do something. Like I, I think you know I'm not, that's not to say like the Sixers are being over overly scrutinized, but like it's interesting that like Utah is just kind of largely running it back and it's like we're on what year four or five i know like they've had the hayward and gobert era and they brought in conley and all these things but like we're getting pretty far into this schneider gobert duo and and they're still kind of trying to make the next step so i'm curious kind of why there Mm -hmm. hasn't been a little more buzz around them trying to shake it up and i know it's it's a little different because utah is a small market and philly is a big market but um i think it makes sense to try and do something and I, i don't know if ben's that guy um, but what I do know is Snyder is the most creative right. offensive coach that he's played for. Um, it just like, I mean, it's just the fact, the fact of the matter. And like, I, I relate back to Sacramento a little bit too. Like if Sacramento's looking for a reason, like Gentry is obviously in the system, but he's a fantastic offensive mind too. So like, that's part of it. If you can, like, if you can find more creative ways to use Ben, like I know some of it is tied to his own limitations. A lot of it is, but like, I, I would be curious to kind of see him in a really, really smart offensive system. And that's what I think. Utah would mm-hmm. So I like I like Utah as a, as, a, as a suitor there a lot. I really do think it makes sense. They got to do something. They they just need more perimeter defense. I think you just like Gobert has his own issues, but it was more a symptom of the fact that like none of their perimeter defenders could keep you know the the Clippers in front of them. They couldn't they couldn't execute a, a closeout twice in a row or an effective closeout twice in a row in that series down the stretch. So um, really like that idea of it too. I hadn't really considered that. But I think it's an awesome one. So. Um, yeah, uh, anything else you want to touch on with the Sixers, Lauren? really appreciate you coming on, providing insights on both Philly and Dallas today. Um, anything else you want to touch on before mm-hmm. we uh, we head out for the uh, afternoon? Yeah, sure. I, I do think, because I, I am all about the trade scenarios, I think they're very fascinating. And I, I also think that it's very difficult to find something that not only works for all teams involved, but like, because there are lots of trades that work for all teams involved on paper, but the internal value of a player and the history of relationships within certain organizations are probably the most important factor, more so than just the fit on paper. So to be able to find a scenario that could work but that could actually happen because even though the relationships are there, the the return of what you would get changes where you are as a franchise. That's what's so fascinating about it to me. So uh, just to throw a couple of, of other teams out there where I think you could also see something similar. Um, Indiana, I think, is, is another mm-hmm. kind of sleeper team. Even at, I could see even Atlanta try to get in there mm-hmm. and get a little bit crazy. Yeah, uh, so Atlanta, Indiana, Golden State, I do see that trade uh, that trade scenario in there that was in, in the comments from Ryan that has been going to Golden State, uh, Wiseman and Tyrese going to Portland, and then uh, CJ and Wiggins going to, to Philadelphia. I think I do think it's really going to take a lot. I personally, I don't see uh, Portland moving off of CJ before they move off of Dame, but Ben to Golden State. And Golden State plus a third team is something that I definitely think could happen because Golden State has a lot of really intriguing young prospects. I don't see them moving off of Kaminga, but I think Moody and Wiseman probably are attainable. So if if Philadelphia can get a third team in there that is younger, like a Sacramento or a San Antonio or even like an OKC, well, okay, no, scratch OKC. Um, <laughs> like a young team in there that would want these young players, but that could have someone that they could bring to the table in this win now situation to give Philly something that they would want. It's just really a matter of, which is why I come back, come back to Indiana. I think Indiana is a really, really strong uh, possibility because they have so many 
movable contracts, but also players that could work immediately in Philadelphia. So uh, I don't see Philadelphia getting the Bradley Beal or Damian Lillard, um, but there are lots of avenues out there where they can get guys that will come in and give them exactly what they need that could take them to that next level. So it's a very fascinating situation. uh, And I'm, believe me, every single day I'm waiting for that news to drop. (laughs) Yeah. I think, I think a lot of us are, um, yeah, I think Indiana is interesting. And like I've mentioned, I've had, I think I've mentioned them a couple of times. I had Tony East on start of the offseason to talk about some trade scenarios. It's a little tough because yeah. Sabonis and Simmons isn't is a precarious fit. But as you mentioned, they have right. a lot of good players who are on not exuberant contracts. Um, you know, unfortunately, some of TJ Warren's foot injury is still going to hamper him, which is a huge bummer for his sake. Um, but he's a guy you yes. know just makes sense for his isolation score. Um, I'm you know I look at the the trade that Ryan suggested. I'm curious, like how does how does the Sixers afford both the the CJ and Wiggins contract? Is it, he's got the he's got the trade up there, and it, it works through a trade NBA. But I would, ha- I mean, I'm not, I'm not a cap expert, but I'm surprised they're able to only only hmm. get rid of they're not okay, they're only able they only have to move Ben and his big deal and get two thirty plus million dollars yeah. back. So um, have, to, have to talk with someone who knows this cap a little more than me. But I was surprised that that worked. Um, yeah, I think that was interesting as well. Um, Golden State, obviously, you know. This team that kind of probably should be moving some of their young guys to maximize Steph mm-hmm. and Andre and you know whatever Clay looks like. Hopefully he's he looks like his normal self. Uh, we're close to normal self when he returns sometime. I think around the start of the year, roughly when he's projected to come back. Um, but yeah, I think I guess I know they've been, I know there's been reports that Golden State's been trying to move or is trying to move seven and fourteen before the draft. Yeah. Um, you know, as much as like as much as you can like Wiseman, Kaminga, and Moody as much as you want, but. They're just not going to give you more. It's not going to help Steph more than maybe trading for a rotation guy or or more offensive firepower. So I think that makes some sense, generally speaking. But again, it's that Golden State and Philadelphia are in similar spots, right? Where they're trying to maximize the primes of their superstars. So yeah, you have to involve a third team there where where it gets a little murky. Uh, And as we continue to embrace this play, and more teams are interested in winning now, and so there's a little less intrigue about young guys. Not less, but like you you know what I mean, like. There's 20 spots now that you could like right. get your foot in the door to make your playoffs. It's crazy. Um, and there's probably about 23 to 24. I have to think about it a little bit deeper, but like there's probably 23 to 24 teams that I could see an outcome where they make the playoffs. Maybe more than that. I would have to stretch a little bit creatively, but I could see where 25, 26 teams you know make it. Um, maybe Cade Cunningham looks like a top 25 player, and the Pistons mm-hmm. are are rocking. Um, but yeah, uh, Lauren, really appreciate you you hopping on. Um, tell people where they can find you and, and follow you and listen to your, your work and, and, and read your work and all that. Give yourself a little plug here. Absolutely. Well, thank you again so much for having me. This is uh, this has been fantastic. Um, yes, you can follow me uh, on Twitter at Elgun with four N's. All my work is attached to there. Like he mentioned at the beginning of this pod, I am the co-host of the Gunshot Podcast with my brother Grant Gunn, uh, and I am also a writer for Mavs Moneyball, the Dallas Mavericks uh, SB Nation. Um, affiliate. So yeah, if you, I'm always trying to connect with people from other teams, fan bases. Cause like I said, part of the most interesting, the most interesting aspect of trying to find a trade, a trade scenario, or even predict a trade scenario is being able to accurately assess the internal value of other teams players. And so while I am a fan of the Dallas Mavericks, I am a huge fan of the NBA as a whole. So I'm always trying to connect with people from other fan bases. So come chat with me. Yeah, right on. Uh, definitely give Lauren a follow, listen, read all her work. Um, for everyone listening uh, as a podcast, we'll be back sometime in the next few days to do a little more uh, Sixers stuff. Again, similar format, I think. Got to get that mailbag that I fielded questions for a few days ago. Um, but, in the, but in the meantime, before I log off, um, last thing, when I went back and talked about the Jason Kidd thing, I said if I offended anyone, that's not what I meant. I just want to apologize if I offend someone is not an apology. So just want to make sure I'm clear on my phrasing. But anyhow, uh, I apologize for that. But uh, in the meantime, stay happy, stay healthy, stay safe. I'll talk to all of you again soon. Thank you for listening.